up a pen, start writing. I want to talk about what I have learned, the hard-won wisdom I have earned. As far as the people are concerned, you have to serve. You could continue to serve. One last time, the people will hear from me one last time. And if we get this right, we're going to teach them how to say goodbye. Good morning and welcome to episode 757 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of ESPN. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? Okay. Tell tell the listeners where they can read all your takes on this baseball game. <laughs> they can hear my takes right now. I will very quickly say thank you to everyone who reached out over the weekend and said nice things about Grantland and about me, and Sam and I both thrive on compliments, so getting lots of compliments was almost worth the website ending, but not quite worth it. So I am still employed at ESPN, and I will be writing somewhere, and once I am, you will all know where that is. And I won't bore everyone with too many thank yous, because if you follow any Grantland writers on Twitter, you've already read them 10 times. But really, everyone associated with the site, from Bill Simmons and Dan Fearman, who hired me, to my editors, Mallory Rubin and Mark Lasanti and Ryan O'Hanlon and Chris Ryan and Sean Fennessy, all the other writers were nothing but nice and supportive and encouraging and great to work with. And really, I mean, the place let me continue to do this podcast the whole time I was there and let me spend a summer working with the Stompers and writing a book about it. And not a lot of employers would have permitted that. So I'm grateful for that and for the fact that they let me write about movies and TV and video games and music, despite very little prior evidence that I could do those things. So really the best testament to the site is that everyone who worked there just hopes to work somewhere else half as good again. So it's going to be missed, and we're all very sad to see it go. Well, Ben, I will, uh, I guess, since I haven't told you this, I mean, I think that, I think that it's not just that Grantland is the best collection of sports and other, but sports writing that I think has ever been put together, but I believe it is the best that could possibly be put together. I don't think there was actually a way to improve it by even 1%. And uh, so uh, for the rest of my life, it will be the best collection of sports writers and sports writing that I ever saw. Which is a little extra upsetting because if the best possible collection couldn't work, then what can? No, I know. That's uh, that's what I told people who asked me this weekend. That was my thought too. It's somewhat depressing uh, that, uh, that, that there is no way to... Uh, to succeed with uh, by being better. Like there are ways to succeed. Lots of things succeed, and maybe there's a better business model, or maybe there's something that could happen. I mean, this is, I, you could replay various aspects of uh, Grantland's journey along the way, and maybe it's thriving in a slightly different way. But it couldn't have gotten better and succeeded. Like it, it wasn't that it lacked. And I mean, you know, when you're a, a content producer, that's where your mind goes. You mm-hmm. think, well, how can I make this better? And making it better wouldn't have helped. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's somewhat have, possibly could have made it more appealing, but not better. 
Yeah, but then I wouldn't. It wouldn't have been but the it best. It wouldn't have been better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, Tough I... weekend, though. End of the diner. End of Grantland. End of baseball. All hitting at once. Yeah, two of those make you sad. <laughs> My girlfriend cried at the, uh, at the end of the diner. But not at the end of the baseball. No, she was yeah. probably not displeased about that. Right. I mean, you know, the end of baseball for for you and for I is not that. Uh, is not that big a deal because we're living in a baseball space pretty much all the time, mm-hmm. even in the off season, and you hardly even notice whether there are games or not games going on. Yeah, instead of writing about this baseball, I'm writing about a different kind of baseball because we've yeah. got a book too. Um, all right, so a couple of quick things. Uh, let's see. Um, one is that I believe that I have figured out why it is Chobani and not Kobani. Um, it seemed to me that it should be Kobani because, like, the Greek letter Chi, the C-H, uh-huh. it makes a K hard K. Uh, but I've, uh, I've done some research, multiple layers of research, and I've discovered that uh, the uh, root word of uh, the company's name is uh, Turkish. And in Turkish, uh, it's, it's actually C-O-B-A-N is the root word. And in Turkish, the C makes a kind of a J sound, J, Joban. And so the root word, it would be pronounced Choban, so Chobani. And that probably also explains why the guy doesn't take doesn't a batting helmet, helmet. Because yeah. there's not a lot of baseball in Turkey. Mm-hmm. All right. Secondly, uh, this is old, but when we talked about whether uh, the Royals' uh, bullpen last year, uh, which was called HDH, had any specific significance to those letters, uh, it was pointed out that HDH was... Um, has some echoes in the uh, songwriting duo, Holland, Dozier, Holland, one, not duo, trio, may, uh, one of the maybe two or three great songwriting uh, uh, outfits in history. Um, and so there's an HDH there. And of course, Herrera, Davis, Holland is in that order, also HDH. And, um, and uh, Holland, Greg Holland, is it's a, there's a there's even a Holland in both of them, mm-hmm. and so that's plausible. I'm not rejecting that out of hand, but I've never heard anybody call Holland Dozier Holland anything but Holland Dozier Holland. Holland Dozier Holland is the the it is the the phrase, uh, and I don't know that anybody ever called Holland Dozier Holland H D H. I don't know that it was ever abbreviated that way, even in print. And so that makes it a little harder to accept. So I'm rejecting. I'm accepting the plausibility, but rejecting the uh, the likelihood. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a reference to some other trio. They're their own trio. Yeah, but why? I mean, you know, you could do that for anybody. Why didn't we call them uh, HMD this mm. year? You know, why don't why didn't we call it uh, CDM in uh, for the Nasty Boys? Well, they had the Nasty Boys, I guess. The right, Royals didn't have yeah. a cool nickname, so. Uh, yeah, but, but the Nasty still... Boys is just the Nasty Boys is just words chosen <laughs> to sound cool, yeah. and so you could have done any. You could have given them a cool name. It's not like it's not like the Reds signed a like a gang of boys that called themselves the Nasty Boys. <laughs> like they didn't. They weren't like like workshopping this act in their garage and got discovered by some like baseball exec and they're like what do you call yourselves and they're like the nasty boys right. this being 1940 <laughs> when the when the nasty boys went. uh anyway uh so i still feel like there should be significance otherwise what's the point mm-hmm. 
All right. Lastly, we talked about uh, we've talked multiple times about Trout's punctuation, and I don't think I mentioned this, but uh, I actually uh, one time Mike Trout uh, in his rookie year did a uh, ESPN chat, and uh, I was watching closely at the time to see whether he would use the extra space before punctuation, and he did not, which goes which might go to the it's his phone defense or, or dictation. Yeah, or it's just that somebody... Oh, well, wait, are you suggesting that it's dictation on his phone? I'm suggesting that he dictated his chat yeah. responses. I think yeah, I think that is, yeah. I think it's more likely that he didn't type any of those words. Yeah, uh-huh. and similarly, he recently, quote-unquote, wrote something for the Players' Tribune, and his unique punctuation was not preserved in yeah, that but there's article. E- there's editors there, though. Yes, right. So they did, they did not capture his voice. Yeah. All right. Uh, you got anything? Well, the World Series ended. Guess we should talk about that. Nothing yeah. else, though. Okay. Um, all right. I think that Hosmer uh, would be safe about, I'd say, 85 to 90% of the time against Duda and 75 to 80% of the time against a uh, the entire league's first baseman. Mm-hmm. That's my hot. That's my hot take, and it is. Uh, it seems to me I, I would have thought this would be more controversial. I mean, the, for goodness sakes, the Alex Gordon should Alex Gordon have gone play was fairly controversial until you know Jeff Gordon, uh, Jeff Gordon, Jeff Sullivan uh, put put it to rest, um, and that was much less. It seems to me debatable than this. Uh, so why do you suppose it is that? Uh, this is that so many people this morning feel uh, the need to point out that Hosmer, in their opinion, uh, bungled things and got bailed out by Duda. I don't know. I had heard things about how this is reflective or emblematic of just the Royals' aggressive style. Is he is he not being celebrated for his aggression or aggressiveness? Are people actually saying that he made a mistake? Do you think that he made a mistake? response outnumbers the it was gutsy aggressive baseball and they took advantage of the other team's weakness response i think that there are yeah there maybe there are three reactions one is it's just a good play uh and it is nothing specific about devil magic or duda it's just a good play uh or you know it has nothing to do with the royals advanced scouting report which now we're Hearing the Royals uh, were told to run on Duda. It's right. amazing. They've got an advanced scouting report. <laughs> a lot of their for... advanced scouting reports just seem to be pointing extremely out, convenient. Pointing, well, not only extremely no, convenient, but obvious. but pointing out who is and isn't a good defender. <laughs> like yeah. their scouts know that Lucas Duda is not a Gold Glove first baseman. They're like every time they advance a base on anyone, like it's because they were told that that guy didn't have a great arm or something. I mean, that's the bare minimum of advanced scouting that's that's what advanced scouting is i'm sure that the mets were told certain things about the royals and the royals probably just had fewer vulnerabilities and certainly fewer defensive vulnerabilities but you know telling guys to run on people who have weak arms is like advanced scouting 101 yeah it'd be like if the mets won and after they were like our scouts told us hosmer bats (laughs) left-handed yeah (laughs) So we put in a lefty against him. <laughs> so anyway, there's the the I forget where I was in this conversation, but there's the 
uh, it was just a good play, um, and it was good instincts, and uh, the details in it made it even a better play, but it was a good play. That's where I stand. I think it was just a good play. Um, and then there's the, on the other side, there's the um, the way that the Royals have become the new Cardinals and everybody hates them mm-hmm. for their devil magic. Uh, although, also, everybody loves them. Even the ones who hate them for their devil magic love them, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, but there's the idea that Hosmer actually screwed up, that uh, it's not, it wasn't good base running, um, and that he um, he didn't force the mistake so much as the Mets made a mistake uh, and bailed him out. And that um, if you ran this World Series a thousand times, Hosmer uh, would have run himself out of that game more often than not, and so we shouldn't hold him up to a thousand glowing profiles this morning. I mean, that's what it's always about, right? Like, nobody nobody hates Hosmer for making a mistake. Nobody ever hates a baseball player for making a mistake. We're always responding to the media. It's all the arguments, it seems like, pretty much are about the media. And so it started when Joe Buck... I mean, it started immediately after Joe Buck called it brilliant base running. Like, it was immediately like... Like, uh, I forget who, but somebody's... Like, they there was mocking of Joe Buck, and somebody had a funny tweet about... Eric Hosmer like driving off a cliff and landing in a pile of money bags and Joe Buck going brilliant driving uh-huh. and that sort of idea that he's getting uh, credit from dummies who uh, are kind of missing the play. I don't think they are missing the point of that play. But anyway, and then there's the one in the middle, which is uh, that, yeah, the this is probably a bad play, but uh, the Royals got their magic, their good magic, their esky magic, which isn't quite as accidental as we always thought it was. And in fact, this is consistent with what they've been doing all, all postseason long, which is kind of turning their flaws or what we see as their flaws into strengths uh, because of the relentlessly aggressive and competent way that they play. Mm-hmm. And people in the middle really like that about the Royals. And they like that's one of the reasons this team is very fun. There's a, a, uh, a uh, bias toward action. Uh, on the Royals' part, and we like that. Um, so, uh, but even in that one, even in the middle one, you're not giving Hosmer credit necessarily for being smart. You're giving Hosmer credit for being part of a swarm of bees that is, in a way, uh, in unable to defend against, and yet also not necessarily, um, like, they're not individually excellent they're just they're they're like they're this it sort of takes the individual excellence out of some of these plays and turns them into um like a you know like a big pack of red ants that uh beats you but have brains the size of red ant brains Uh or yeah or or it transfers the credit to the coaches who instilled that mindset in these blank slates or or more recognized these sort of this sort of players and put a whole team of them together, that kind of thing. Or even worse, it gives the credit to the media guy who writes about how he likes this kind of play and doesn't like Adam Dunn. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So we got a listener email from Dan in D.C. who asked about the Duda play, and he said, Eric Hosmer's scoring on Lucas Duda's errant throw to the plate in Game 5 got me thinking... Are most teams far too cautious in such situations? It seems like most first basemen would have trouble with that throw, 
but I can't imagine most teams sending the man from third there because the downside is too great. Similarly, the Royals won the deciding game against the Blue Jays because they sent Lorenzo Cain in a situation almost no other team would have. This reminds me of a current debate in football where statisticians state that teams should go for it far more on fourth down than they do now, but coaches thus far have not changed much and continue to consistently punt, apparently out of fear of failure. So are these isolated instances or have the Royals exposed a widespread inefficiency wherein teams leave runs on the board because they are too cautious? So I guess you would say yes. I don't know if it's widespread, but to some extent, yes. Yeah, I mean, well, I think certainly in, in this case, they the if you look at it, the the math basically says he had to make it one out of three times. And I think there's some debate about whether he would make it one out of three times, as noted. Um, but I think that he would have made it much more. And so to to criticize the decision or to act as though it was accidental, uh, right, does seem to take away the relatively basic math that is required or, you know, the intuitive math that I think everybody is out there has some sort of math clock ticking in their own brain that they know without having to actually access it directly. And I think that he, uh, there's, I think the fact that Hosmer wasn't afraid of what would happen if he were thrown out uh, is potentially an underrated aspect of this, that the Royals do play as a team that says, you know, we're not going to treat one failure as worse than one success, that we're not going to have that fallacy where people don't want to, what, what is the one, the, the, the classic one where Risk if you, yeah, like if you give people, like if you ask people to bet like, uh, you know, a dollar oh, yeah. on, on a coin version. flip. Right, you 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 ask them to bet a dollar on a coin flip, and they'll win two dollars if they if they get it, and the odds are obviously that they should do it, and still a large number of people don't do that. They they it's bizarre, but they they treat a loss as more damning, and more damaging than a win is um, bolstering, and uh, something about the Royals does seem to at least it emerged in this postseason in a series of plays that they were kind of fearless. And that's a cliche, and it goes to a lot of the things that are unprovable that people say about the Royals only because they won, and it's a results-oriented analysis, and I recognize that. Um, but uh, as long as we're talking about it, uh, yeah, some of these plays do seem like plays that not every player would make, and I don't know if that's because not every team gives their players the kind of empowerment to make those plays and to to make their own decisions all the time and to uh to to do kind of crazy things and that might be a case where uh the cliche about a team feeding off itself which i almost always 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 just throw out i don't i don't really think teams feed on themselves that much most of the time when it comes to you know whether the offense is clicking or whether the pitchers are driving each other or whatever but the style of play if you've created a, a culture where uh, the 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 behavioral norms make this less risky for you, and you can do the more rational decision uh, for you know your team's good instead of worrying about what it's going to be like walking back into that into that dugout. Then it maybe does free up some of these decisions. Yeah, and I don't know what the legacy of this Royals team will turn out to be. It seems like there are many different 
legacies that it could be, and maybe it'll be more than one. I don't know whether it'll be the importance of building from within and having guys come up together and build that kind of camaraderie. Maybe people will say that. Maybe people will say speed and defense. Maybe people will say a good bullpen. Maybe people will say contact hitting. But it seems like one of the ones that is kind of coming to the fore is just being well coached or being smart or having good fundamentals or not making mistakes. And the Royals do make mistakes. I mean, they made some pretty big mistakes in this series even. Just, you know, the Eric Hosmer error or Alex Rios forgetting how many outs there were. Both of those at the time seemed like potentially pretty crucial mistakes that could cost the Royals the game. And it didn't. Neither of them did. And so now we probably won't remember them. We'll remember the Mets' mistakes instead. So even the Royals weren't perfect, but it does seem like they play pretty smart. And that's like kind of a tough thing to quantify. So it sounds sort of insubstantial, but there's probably something to it. I mean, you watch them play and it definitely seems like, I don't know whether to call them clutch or we can say in retrospect that they were clutch. I don't know whether that's an inherent quality of the Royals, but they certainly didn't choke. We can say that much about them. They didn't make mistakes that were so costly that they lost the game. They seemed to take every advantage that they could when it was given to them. And those are qualities that maybe it's kind of hard to build into a team, but they did it. Yeah, the, the, a lot of those qualities are exactly what people said about the Angels from about 2002 to about 2006. Yeah. I mean, they were the contact team. They were the first to third team. They were the uh, lights-out bullpen put together relatively cheaply team. Um, and uh, they were not the walks and the home runs team. And that um, it really became clear after around 2006, 7, 8, uh, that uh, this was not something that you can just decide as a coaching staff or an organization or anything like that. This is the style of play you're going to be. It turned out in retrospect that a lot of that style of play was was something inherent in some of the guys on the team and that was suited to the skills of a lot of the guys on the team. And I don't think necessarily that you can put together a team uh, of players who play a particular way intentionally because there's just not enough players available and it's not that it's just too hard to get players to come to you and uh, you can certainly skew toward a kind of player that you prefer to other GMs but your players are in a in a large sense going to dictate the style of play that you play in a huge 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 sense going to dictate the style of play and the Royals because they were I think because they were really young um, some of these things uh particularly like the speed and the the pressure they could put on the defense, uh, were suited to them. Uh, and some of the styles of player that they have were suited to this. But I don't know that this is something that the other 29 teams can go into this offseason saying we're going to put together a team anything like this. It's great. It's great when it happens. And a lot of baseball is, uh, well, it was great that that happened. And it was great that that happened with the Royals. They were a really good team that had some really good skills and seemed to fit together really well. Yeah, and it's possible to overstate how well they fit together or or the effect that they produced in tandem, like the idea that the Royals' aggressiveness forces teams to make mistakes 
I mean, it's hard to disprove. It could be true in certain cases. And I, I guess, you know, the more balls you put in play, the more errors the other team will make just because there are more opportunities. But if that is something that people are ascribing to the Royals, I think it's not necessarily something we need to ascribe to the Royals in that, as Dave Cameron pointed out, they reached on error, I think, twice more all season than the average team. So this wasn't something that they were doing constantly throughout the year and separating themselves from every other team. And the Mets make errors. Like That's a thing that we knew about the Mets coming into this series. We talked about it in our preview or in the preview I wrote. It was something we talked about that the Mets weren't strong up the middle and the Royals would put a lot of balls in play and that maybe that matchup wasn't great for the Mets. So the fact that it worked out that way doesn't necessarily mean there's something inherent about the Royals that made it work out that way more than it would have worked out for some other similar team. But, you know, it was, I guess you you give them credit for taking advantage of the mistakes that they were given. So the reason that I think that it's underrated uh, how, or kind of uh, underappreciated how hard it was to get Hosmer and how likely it was that he was going to score is that everybody sees the screen grab and they see the ball at the catcher's glove, the time that it would have gotten to the catcher's glove, and then they see Hosmer, and he's like 12 feet away. And I think that you there's not enough appreciation for how fast a guy comes into home. Like, this is not like sliding into second where you have to stop. Uh, and so he's at a full sprint, uh, and he closes those last 12 seconds in, like, a frame. Like, it's it's almost immediate that he's on home plate after after that and you don't really see the momentum in a screen grab obviously and the other you know the other aspect of the play is that the guy has to catch it and he has to turn he has to turn and tag he has to bring it down and turn and tag you cannot put the throw on the runner from that angle there's just not any lane where you put the throw on the runner this is not like throwing a guy out at second or throwing a guy out at home from left field where the ball can hit the target and just be there right away and he's got to tag blindly. He's got to turn and swipe. And uh, that's really hard to do even with a good throw. Now, a perfect throw, I agree. A perfect throw gets him. Uh, and there are perfect throws. But like uh, most people who are listening to this won't have read what I wrote about this, but I looked at a similar play that Adrian Gonzalez made coming home uh, on a runner that he didn't get. And, um, and, you know, he makes a good throw. There's a way that that throw probably could have been better too, but Adrian Gonzalez is an above average first baseman. And if that's his throw, you maybe can consider that to be the median throw. And Hosmer's not, is fairly close. He is not behind um, my uh, comparison runner uh, by more than a step. And uh, like that step, like I said, it comes fast, it closes fast. And Hosmer was going in head first, uh, the other guy was going in feet first, so he's probably even coming in slightly faster. Um, and, uh, and you know, like I'm looking at that and thinking that uh, with a good first baseman like Adrian Gonzalez, the most probably I'm going to give him is a 50-50 chance of getting the runner. Uh, and with, you know, Duda coming at a much harder angle than the Adrian Gonzalez play with the runner coming right in his path and having to drop down, uh, and throw a little bit sidearm to get it around there. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, it being Duda, everybody knows it's Duda. 
um, and Hosmer needing only a one in three chance to make it. It just seems like very obvious to me. Now, maybe I'm wrong. A lot of things have seemed very obvious to me and turned out to be either not that obvious or flat wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have a hard time thinking it's anything but a clear run situation, running situation there. And still many players might not have done it just because of the momentousness of the situation and the pressure and the risk and, you know, how bad it would have been if he had been caught. So you can still credit him for that, but just all credit, not not blame for making a decision that was bad but worked out well anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And should we discuss the other decision that you wrote about? Um, yeah, the decision, not the decision to let Harvey stay in, but the decision to ignore the decision that had already been made. Yeah. Now, I guess we could talk about the decision to let Harvey in. It, every game, every single game, that is the managerial deci- decision that we talk about now. Do you <laughs> yeah. leave the starter in for this extra batter or not? Every single game, that is where we are in yes. analysis right now. Uh, and they do it so much every time. Yeah. <laughs> they really do. Like they did it on Saturday with oh, Stephen Matz, no, no. even though he hit, and they had to have him hit as well, and then left him in, and he didn't get another out. Well, how about leaving Volquez in? in the yeah, sixth? In, in game six. Yeah, that no, that in the in the inning in the sixth inning in the fifth inning was mm-hmm. it the sixth or the fifth. The game, the yeah, game inning. five. I mean, yeah, game five. Yeah, I mean that was. Like, that might have been a top two or three bad leaving a pitcher in move mm-hmm. all year. I mean, all postseason. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if the Royals had lost, we'd be talking about that mm-hmm. right now. If uh, Johannes Cespedes had um, not been one-legged by the end of his at-bat, we might have been still talking about it because he might have driven in another run um anyway uh how egregious was or maybe not egregious how, what would you have done just just taking out the whole second aspect of this if you're terry collins sitting in the dugout at the end of the uh in the middle of the eighth and trying to decide what to do with the ninth what are you doing i think the mets would have been more likely to win with familia starting the inning but i think it's a very small advantage i think Harvey, I mean, even the fourth time through the order or whatever it was is still very good. And Familia had pitched a couple days in a row. I don't know whether that affects him at all. But I think, you know, Harvey's still good enough that the vast majority of the time he gets out of that inning. And maybe a slightly vaster majority of the time Familia gets out of that inning. But I think it's small. And I think if he had taken him out after the leadoff walk, it would have been less egregious but yeah it was obviously the way the decision was made was worse than the decision yeah i probably leave harvey in with a two-run lead and like the thing about it is that the we know the third time through the order penalty but if you look at the fourth time through the order Mm -hmm. the numbers are really phenomenal and that's because pitchers only get the fourth time if they're pitching really well and uh, Harvey was pitching really well, or you know, usually because they're really good too. Harvey's really good. He was pitching really well. I know, I know that like there's a, a school of thought that even pitchers who are pitching really well are no more likely to pitch better going forward. And I, I know, I know, I know, and I know, and you know. I'm not saying and, anything. I'm thinking it, but yeah. And yet, uh, it does seem like um, it, there's a there's a risk to bringing in a new guy. 
uh, even your closer, there's a risk because you haven't seen him throw a pitch from a mound that day yet. You don't know what he's got. And you pretty much know what Harvey's got. And so just on the on the chance that it seems like a disaster is slightly more likely if you bring in a new guy. Uh, and also, you know, I do kind of want to let Harvey finish it if I can. I think it's good. It's good entertainment. Like as a as a manager, I would probably get wrapped up in the story sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Familia had pitched two days in a row. I agree. I don't know how much that matters, but I bet it matters some. Um, although he ended up pitching extremely well for two full innings, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't know that uh, going in. And so uh, with with a two-run lead, it seems like uh, very defensible, and I would have sent him back out there uh, with a one-base runner. Right. Yeah, I mean, leaving him in after the walk when he looked very yeah, wild it wasn't, and excited was... Yeah, it wasn't a good walk is the... Yeah. The problem. I mean, I could I could even see giving him a two base runner leash, but it has to be the right first base runner. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did not. I mean, I I'm, I might have pulled a mid batter. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like it it it. Why not? Like you you can do that too. The rules allow it. Yeah. And I would have probably well not after he yelled at me and <laughs> yeah, on TV well, I wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Well, between that and leaving Cespedes in when he couldn't move, which I, you know, putting in a pinch hitter at that point down 0-2, the guy's probably not going to do anything better than Cespedes did anyway, but the fact that he couldn't get down the line at all, like even if he had made contact, put the ball on the ground, he would have had no chance whatsoever to get to first base or put any pressure on. So that seems like another case where the player just talked the manager into something or the manager allowed himself to be talked into something and it almost I mean it makes me wonder whether you should just like designate a total stranger to make moves in a game because they won't be oh like bound by by this like pressure of having a relationship with the person that you have to maintain for the future and just do it by drone yeah I mean well no really that one of the things that's great about replay and I don't know that it changes the rule the the uh any rules because or any um decisions because this but it creates a real feeling that the guy who's making the decision is not going to be thinking about oh is this the home team how mad are they going to be has a guy been yelling at me all day has a guy been spittling on me all day am I afraid of this player do I have it in for this player it's just a dude 3,000 miles away or maybe 12 miles away but uh, in an office who's making the call. And all of that stuff that you don't want influencing the call is stripped away. And I actually – I think that's an uh, – has been a great aspect of the replay system is just t- giving it to an umpire who I feel even more certainty about his uh, objectivity and ability to make a objective Ruling and yeah, it's a, you could. So anyway, that that and is I, not. In a way, I guess Collins tried to have a buffer between him and Harvey by designating Denny Worthen to tell him. And I, I mean, maybe that's what they do in every single decision. I don't know that there was anything strange about this particular decision, but that at least establishes some slight remove between the manager and the player, except that it's always completely obvious who is making that decision. So it was, a, I think it was a bad, even if he does that every single time, I still, and I don't know, maybe, maybe he and Collins hate each other and maybe he, Worthen and Harvey are best friends or something. But, uh, 
I think it was the wrong decision to tell have Worthen tell him because then you let Harvey get momentum. Now Harvey char- is charging you. He's coming at you with steam. <laughs> and if you if you go over, and so now at this point, everybody has seen him approach you, and somebody is losing face in this situation. And uh, and you can imagine that Harvey now is even more committed to not losing face in this situation, and he becomes more imposing and intimidating. The other thing is that Harvey is now standing up, and Harvey has got what nine inches yeah. on Collins, yeah. maybe maybe more. And um, so I actually think that whether even if he does this every single time, I think Collins got to go over there and put his arm around him and say, "This is my decision. And this is what I'm doing." And that's who he's got to hear it from. I'm not sure that he doesn't make the decision stick mm-hmm. if he does it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, the the decision, the all the familiar decisions were were weird in this series. I guess every every decision involving familia was kind of controversial in this series, at least after game one, maybe. So, I mean, the the decision to pitch him Friday in the blowout. I don't know if it quite qualifies as a blowout, but close to a blowout was obviously debated just because you have two games coming up the next two days and what Collins said that he's a big guy and he's strong and he likes to work and they wanted him to be sharp and and he wanted to pitch so if that's the case that's fine and if he can throw 11 pitches without being compromised for the rest of the series then I have no problem with it except that obviously Collins felt that he was kind of compromised by it or it did change how he handled him the next day when he started the eighth inning with Tyler Clippard instead of Juris Familia. And it's so strange. Like, I mean, no one watching would make that decision. It's so weird how we're still often so disconnected from managers. Like, we're watching the same game that they're watching, and they've been managing a long time, and they should... They should either, like, either they should have changed our minds by now and convinced <laughs> us that the way yeah. that they do these things is right, or we should have changed their minds by now. Like, it's weird that there's still such a disconnect between the ways that they make these moves and the ways that we think they should make these moves. So, and you would think that if you were Terry Collins, like, I mean, I, I think he said in a press conference maybe after the Friday game that, or I guess it was maybe after the Saturday game that he had been killed earlier in the postseason for using Familia for six outs. And I don't know who killed him for that. It seemed like everyone was loving the Juris Familia Mariano Rivera act. I, I mean, maybe he read the one article that took issue with that and he internalized that. But it seems like no one would have blamed him for bringing Familia out in the eighth. And potentially everyone would have blamed him for bringing Clippert out. So you'd think that even if he was only thinking about his own reputation, let alone what would make the Mets more likely to win the game, that that is not the decision that he would have made. So I don't know how things like that happened. <laughs> it's just mystifying to me. And I don't know, you know, maybe they would have lost anyway. Obviously, the, the Mets kept making mistakes, and Daniel Murphy's not good at defense, and that's not Terry Collins's fault. And so the impact of the Mets players making errors or not getting hits was far greater than the impact of Terry Collins making suboptimal decisions. I mean, the the Mets had four hits in 12 innings yesterday, and it's hard to win a game when you have four hits in 12 innings. So that's the the real reason that they lost. But all these little things didn't help. So uh, we talked about 
what a team might take from the Royals or what the sport might take from the Royals. Um, but the Mets were also a very good team that went very far and had uh, overachieved uh, expectations and came down to, you know, basically a World Series where they very easily could have won it. They could have they could have won it by now. They could have won in five. Yeah, with as a cu- John Thorne you know, tweeted, right, that if, if games were eight innings long, the Mets would have won in five. And it's not like the Mets had a bad closer. The, Man- the Mets had, like, one of the six or seven best closers in baseball. That's a trick I do, Ben. I say six or seven. <laughs> it implies that I've thought about this. <laughs> It's really between four and eighteen. I have no idea. Like I like I'd have to sit down and think about this for a long time. And if I said one of the five, that would sound like a round number, and you'd think I just made it up. If I said sound six, that would sound pretty good. Like that would sound like I tried, mm-hmm. and even though I didn't. But if I say six or seven, it's like I can't. Just, I I did it. Not only did I do this, but I thought so hard about it that I'm leaving. Anyway, uh, they had a really good closer. Like nobody would say that the Mets' problem. That, that any part of the Mets roster problems were their ninth inning guy. He was dynamite. Or and, their rotation slash aces. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm saying to Thorne's point uh-huh. that, yeah. that uh, they're a team that sh- that does win games when they take them to the ninth better than almost anybody in baseball. Uh, so it's not like you could then say, oh, yeah, but they're, yeah, but that's, you know, they sucked in the ninth. Yeah, um, or what the Royals did like after the seventh inning was insane. I mean, the, the there's some ESPN stats and info stats that I will cite. The the Royals only led for 13 innings in this World Series, and the Mets led for 24 innings. So if you want to go by, I don't know, time of possession or something, the Mets would win if you just look at how often the team was winning. And the Royals scored 51 runs in the seventh inning or later, which was 15 more than any other team has scored in the seventh inning or later in a single postseason. And their offense, their breakdown, like between the first and the sixth and the seventh and extras, like the first six innings of the game, they batted 222 with a 269 on base percentage and a 362 slugging. And seventh inning on, they batted 325 with a 392 on base and a 485 slugging. Or you could cite their run differential, which was negative 16 in the first six innings of these games and plus 40 from the seventh inning on, which is the opposite of what you would expect probably in the postseason with most teams, since teams are bringing out guys like Herrera and Davis, except, of course, the Mets were not other than Familia. So maybe this is what you would expect a team to do against the Mets, given how good their rotation was. But it's still surprising the extent to which they came back over and over again. So what I was going to ask, yes, very good point. What I was going to ask uh, about this is what would people take from the Mets? Especially, uh, I mean, because we should take, we should ru- basically take as if, as much as we're going to take anything from one team's postseason run or season uh, that we would have that discussion about the Royals, we should essentially have the same discussion about the Mets. They did essentially the same thing. Uh, so is there something that you would take from the Mets or do we not have to even uh, contemplate that question because we're uh, so hung up on only celebrating one team? Well, I guess one lesson would be that there's no such thing as a definite division winner and even a team that everyone thinks is going to be a juggernaut and roll over everyone, which is the 2015 Nationals, might not end up that way. And so there's a point 
to competing. I mean, when the Mets made their trades at the deadline or, you know, there were points where the Nationals had pulled ahead by a few games and given how much better we thought they were than than the Mets, once they went up a few games, it seemed like, okay, well, this was fun, but now they're going to turn this into a double-digit lead by the end of the season. And instead, the opposite happened, and the Mets were way better in the second half. So there is at least the precedent for that. You can get yourself in trouble a lot of times counting on something like that to happen, but that's at least a reason for hope for many teams. Is that it? Well, I mean, a lot of people... Stylistically, I mean, they... People will just draw the, you know... Get like, four aces. Yeah, four right. Aces. I mean, the, you know, the but percentage that's... that people cite, like 90% of the game is pitching or 87% yeah. of the game is pitching. This is more fodder for, for those sayings. Well, I'm like, uh, you, you could argue that this is a team that depended on young pitching, right? And the way that young pitching has historically worked, you could imagine three of these four guys being horrible or injured or their career's over or yeah. never developed a changeup or anything and the Mets having won 64 games this year. Like, you put all your eggs in the young pitching basket and historically, that's been risky and scary, but maybe it's not anymore. I mean, that, maybe that could be something you could take, that it's safer yeah. or that... Except or that maybe all maybe these it's guys not. have had Tommy John surgery. Well, but so. that's the point. Tommy yeah. John. It's Tommy John is the thing that keeps, you know, the, that it... We live in an era now where you get Tommy John and you come back. That it's not about avoiding injuries. It's about coming back from injuries. And none of these guys had shoulder injuries. And um, so they, they, you know, each of them punted a year and uh, came back. Well, when you did that series this spring on every team's money ball at BP, and Will Woods wrote the Mets entry, and he basically said that the Mets money ball or Sandy Alderson's genius was just stockpiling pitching yeah and obviously it's really hard to just get that kind of pitching talent in the first place that might not be something that other people can reproduce but once you do end up with this crazy pitching depth everyone was saying alderson should trade these guys for bats he should trade john niece he should trade zach wheeler whatever it is and and obviously they kind of came close to doing that at times but he didn't do that and you could say that that's the smart thing that these guys do get hurt a lot, and Zach Wheeler ended up getting hurt, and the fact that he had held on to everyone, I mean, even John Neese had a role, an important role in the World Series, so it served the Mets well that they held on to him. So, And, you know, they were able to call up guys like Conforto who hit and get right back and trade for Cespedes and do these things. Anyway, they still needed hitters, but just holding on to all the pitchers that you have because you can count on some of them getting hurt, is smart. Yeah. For a long time, the Giants would do the opposite. They would always have pitching prospects, and then they would always trade them. And that was the other way of dealing with risk. You either have to get a ton of them, yeah. or... Like the, the Cubs' way of building a team, just mm -hmm. not I mean, not developing pitchers, just yeah. somehow managing to trade for other teams' cast-offs and making them into aces. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm certainly not arguing that teams should... Uh, take the lesson from this season being uh, let's go get four, well, four if you count Wheeler, four like top 20 <laughs> in the game pitching prospects and then have them all be awesome <laughs> along with a like ninth round college shortstop yeah. <laughs> and have him be awesome too. 
Um, but it's not quite, it's not quite, I mean, it, it, there's probably good articles to be written, I guess, about the Mets and uh, whether there was something sustainable about it, whether there was something more than random chance and good luck that led to uh, them having these four incredible young pitchers. Are we calling DeGrom young? Is that okay? Can we yeah, call DeGrom young? I mean, a lot of these guys are not super young. Syndergaard is young and Matt is young. Harvey and DeGrom are on the border. 20, what, 25 and 27, something like that? 25 and 26? Harvey, yeah, Harvey is 26, I think, and DeGrom 27. So. Well, last thing I want to ask you, Ben. We talked about Daniel Murphy's value and how it had changed or his uh, what his price tag will be and how it had changed with mm-hmm. his incredible first two series. And Rob Arthur asked a question that I was going to address here, which is uh, whether uh, he has given all of that back. And even before yesterday, I actually uh, thought that uh, I already didn't think that he had added much to what he would earn. And I think that the air that the air in particular in game three, but also just his general, you know, failure to be good at defense, because I think there was a, there were a couple of other plays where his sort of questionable range came up actually probably would do more to move his value down than to move than anything he could do with the bat in 50 plate appearances could do to move it up mm-hmm. and uh, that just got reinforced i mean there was a i think that the weaknesses that you show in postseason and i'm not talking about uh character weaknesses but the weaknesses that show up on a team in postseason and then get exploited become really stick to you much more than your good your good performances do mm-hmm. and like i i don't i think and an example that i think about is the cardinals with uh pete cosma a few years ago 2012 when they lost to the giants and it like they've been playing with pete cosma for a while and he you know they were a good team and then pete cosma just went out there and you know like you you were like wow they've got pete cosma in their lineup <laughs> Like you've got to like, can you really win with Pete Cosma? And of course you can win with a weak spot, but it just felt like the Cardinals did lose that series at the time because the bottom of their lineup was so bad that it was just unforgivably bad. And so that was interesting. And then they went out and they signed Johnny Peralta. I think some of these years might be wrong, but uh, they went out and they signed Johnny Peralta for what a lot of people thought was a lot. And but it was probably somewhat a reaction to realizing that you are to some degree, you are the weakest chain in the link. And I don't know that there are, I think there are probably teams that would have considered Daniel Murphy as a second baseman before this. And now we'll think I'm going to have such an exposed weak spot mm-hmm. going into a postseason I cannot let that guy play second base for me in the postseason. And it's not because he's a choker. It's because he's not good at defense. Uh, and so probably it becomes much harder for him to position himself as a second baseman or even as a versatility guy. He's a third baseman now, maybe a first baseman. And that's it. That's all I think anybody's going to consider him for, to be honest. Yeah, because even partly the plays he made were just <laughs> scary looking. Like there was yeah. a couple last night that he did make. Like there was one where he just sort of scooped the ball into his body like he just did everything he could to ensure that it didn't go under his glove and then there was another one where he did just sort of stick his glove out and it looked like it could have easily gone under again but it didn't so yeah it was 
it was very shaky. And he hadn't looked that bad defensively earlier in the postseason for the most part, I didn't think. But, yeah, it was definitely exposed. I mean, no, it, it was not a surprise to anyone who watched him regularly or looked at the stats or paid a lot of attention all year. But just to see it come up at such crucial moments, it does sort of drive it home if you were thinking about signing him and just saying, oh, well, he hits six homers every six games, so we can live with it. (laughs) After he stopped hitting six homers and started making errors, it was a lot easier to convince yourself to do that, I think. So, yeah, I would say, so the question is, did he undo all the good that he did in the first couple rounds? And I would say probably yes, and you are arguing that he probably even did more than that. He probably is less earning potential now than he did before the postseason started i think it's possible i probably the highest bidder will end up paying him whatever the highest bidder always would have paid him so i'll i'll probably say that in the end he'll get what he gets but let's say there were 30 daniel murphys and every team had to sign a daniel murphy i would bet that the median offer would go down yeah well it's uh i mean someone tweeted at me today to ask like why the Cubs hadn't intentionally walked Daniel Murphy during their series, even after seeing the World Series, which is the answer, right? He, <laughs> because yeah. that's also Daniel Murphy, and he yeah. does that too. So you would think that, I mean, this is just another go-to example. And I know there's there's like this movement to say that you know the utter dismissal of hot streaks was premature and wrong, and that sabermetricians are kind of taking that back a little bit. And maybe that's true to a very slight extent. Like Mitchell Lichman, I think, has a a study coming out in the Hardball Times annual about clutchness and how there's maybe some effect to it. But it's tiny. It's like a single digits, you know, after like a super hot streak, it's still your maybe single digits of, you know, WOBA or, or true average or whatever better than your baseline. So it's not like you would change your behavior against that guy and... I mean, we saw that again. We saw that with Cespedes, who went from second-half hero and people arguing he should be MVP to just Cespedes again. And Daniel Murphy going from hotter than anyone has ever been in the postseason to not hitting. And maybe some people will say it's because of the layoff, the long layoff between series. And if they'd started the World Series right away, he would have hit eight more homers. But I think this is just another go-to example of the fact that there are hot streaks, but hot streaks end at unpredictable times. Okay. Well, that's the season. I've been uh, doing a little bit of linguistic research, and uh, I'm I'm also going to have to explore a little bit more what the uh, chi in Greek actually uh, – because I might have been wrong in my initial assumption. It's hard to say because the, the, the chi in Greek – uh, is has been pronounced uh, different ways in ancient and modern times and is even pronounced different ways now in modern times uh, depending on your... So I had to figure out what a voiceless palliative fricative is. I, I think I remember. If only I think I remember. a Greek diner still in operation that I could go down and ask. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, that'll that'll be it for this and now the offseason begins. Uh, please, uh, if you want to go read what I wrote at BP about this article, I got four hours of sleep last night so that, uh, people like you, not you, but people like you listening could go read it. It's free. It's on the site and it has uh, more of this discussion, uh, that I didn't get into here. 
Um, and that's, uh, that's going to be it. All right. So thanks for listening to us all postseason and all regular season. And you can continue to listen to us because unlike smart podcast hosts, we don't stop when the season does. So you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Please rate and review and subscribe to the show if you've enjoyed what we've put out this year. And support our sponsor as well, the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. Use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. 